0: And are y'all ready to dig into this word? All right. If you don't mind, I'd like to just jump into and, and read from again from Psalms 13. And this is what it says. It says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I have been shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for today. Thank you for the privilege of being able to not only preach your word, but be able to hear your word. We ask, Lord God, that you would touch all of our hearts as we have various things that have come upon us this week or things that have just been there for some time that would cause us not to have focus right now. So I pray, Lord God, that we would be able to set those to the side so that we can hear your word, minister to our hearts. Speak to us, Jesus. And I pray that anything that is not of you that would even try and come up, that you would shut it out and that you would speak to the preacher as well as those who are here and online. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You know, there are two words that have a very close relationship with each other and they are anxiety and depression. Has anybody ever struggled with any form of anxiety and depression in your life? You don't have to raise your hand. I know that may not be something you want to tell everybody. uh, But these are two words that are intimately related. And um, believe it or not, as I've been doing more study in the field, you'll find out that those who struggle with anxiety disorders are often one of the single most predicators to determine whether or not they'll actually later struggle with depression. And we've all seen since the pandemic that This is something that we must really address. And and for those of you who may still question that, I just want to give you some numbers. Anxiety disorder is the most common illness in the United States, affecting over 40 million people. And this is the ages of 18 and older. Major depressive disorder, 6.7% of Americans, ages 18 and over, which is a total of 14.8 million people who wrestle with this. And for those who may say, oh, well, this is just an older issue, children, 1 in 33 between the ages of uh, 1 and 8 have been diagnosed with clinical depression. And I think one of the biggest travesties that uh, has taken place during the pandemic is we've talked about our own personal adult struggles and mental health issues is that we've forgotten that our children have been forever changed. They're being changed in ways that they don't even fully know how to process. And that's why it's even more important that we be proactive in how we engage our children, but as well as how we engage our own issues. Since the pandemic, anxiety screenings went up a whopping 634%. Depression screenings went up 873%. And between April and uh, and September of 2020, 70% of all people reported loneliness, isolation as one of the top contributing factors to their well-being and their mental health. I got a chance to read an article by Dr. Shorter. It was this article called Sad, Worthless, and Hopeless. And in this, he addresses the fact that mental health is an issue and the experience of hopelessness is something that's commonly experienced. And people who have it, uh, it says that about 6.1% of people who, who are living struggle with this as adults, this sense of feeling hopelessness. But there's a difference between sadness and hopelessness. This lack of hope is actually not natural. Hopelessness is not because one is actually hopeless, but it's because they feel like they are. And just imagine the, the devastating sense of hopelessness. It's this idea that you feel like there's nothing that you can do, nothing that can be said. You're stuck with no hope for change and no hope for the future. And as hard as it is to believe, our technological advances in our society have not helped this. Computers, cell phones, laptops have not made us less stressed, anxious, and depressed. So what do we do with this? What do we do with the reality of anxiety and depression that exist? Someone in this sanctuary has struggled with anxiety and depression. I have wrestled with Bouts of anxiety and depression. And the question is, what do we do with it? When hopelessness hits, when when depression hits, where are we to go? And I think in Psalm 13, we're able to actually learn from David. Now, there's some things I want to set on the forefront as we wrestle with this because this is a very nuanced conversation. I want you to know that this is not a journey you are to take by yourself. So those of you who have been wrestling with anxiety or depression, don't hold it in and keep it inside. Get help. There's nothing wrong with going to the scriptures and going to a counselor. There's nothing wrong with going to the scriptures, going to the counselor, and having to get medication. You do what is necessary to be a part of your healing process. And I want you to be set free with that understanding that you can do that. So if there's been shame that is keeping you from taking that step, please be released through the power of the Holy Spirit right now to know that you get help. God is working through those various aspects to heal people's hearts. It's something that we need. So as we look at today's text, I gave this title, Finding Resolve in His Love, and that is because I believe that is where you're able to find your peace. That's where you're able to find hope. That's where you're able to find resilience. It's in learning to find that resolve in who God is that is fully encapsulated in his love and character. When you look at Psalm 13, it's actually one of the 73 psalms attributed to King David. And despite the research and the countless theologians working through the books, no one knows what the issue was at the time. But for any of you Bible readers, uh, we know this. David did not struggle with issues in life. It's not like we couldn't pick plenty of stories to choose from that would cause him to be in the space he's in now. For example, as a young man caring for the flock, he he had battles with lions and bears. Now, I admit that's an amazing story that he won all those. But I got to believe there's some traumatic effect from that. (laughs) Uh, He killed Goliath, again, beheading him and that. I mean, there's got to be, I understand there were cultural norms, but that still had to impact his mental anxiety and disposition. But he also had to struggle with the issue of being hunted after by his father-in-law and by his best friend's father. The very king that he served sought to kill him. Then he had to deal with the issue of dealing with what he did when he took someone else's wife and then had her husband killed. After that, he had to deal with the rape of his daughter. He then had to also address and walk through the process of being hunted after by his own son. David had a laundry list of issues to which this could possibly be attributed to. And despite this situation, this clear that he has met his end. He's feeling as if emotionally, spiritually, he is just at the end. But the psalm is broken up into what I would call like three little couplets where he walks us through his experience. In verses 1 and 2, he, he comes with the problem before the Lord. Verses 3 and 4, he, he comes with his petition to the Lord. And then lastly, in verses 5 and 6, he comes with praise. Problem, petition, praise. And I know we're wondering, like, well, how do we get to praise? We're going to get there together, all right? The chapter opens with this rapid fire of questions. And I can imagine how he cried out to the Lord, literally saying, how long? How long will you forget me? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart? How long shall my enemy exalt over me? These are questions of how long that come from a deep space of hopelessness and darkness. This isn't coming from a place of basic impatience that you have from sitting in extra long traffic. This isn't a patience that, or lack of impatience that comes from your children who say, Are we there yet? And you've just been in the car about five to ten minutes. This is a different type of how long that he is wrestling with right here. This is a how long that is a distressful how long that says, This is something that has been going on for a very long time. This is somebody who's been sitting in this sense of downtrodden, hopeless spirit, anxious, worried for a long, extended period of time, and there seems to be no relief in sight. This is a how long that comes from trying to restore or heal a relationship or engage with individuals, but they still continue to abuse you or take advantage of your relationship or scenario or continue to war against you and manipulate and oppress you. Despite your valiant efforts to be diligent in love, compassion, peace, and kindness, and self-control, this is the how long that no matter what you do, it still stays the same. And it's not because you sinned. There's nothing in the text that leads us to understand this to be an issue where he is at fault. There's no confession of sin in this text. There's no acknowledgement of uh, feeling guilt for something he did wrong or how he did someone wrong. This is strictly he just feels downtrodden and oppressed by what he's facing. And my question to you is, have you ever been there? See, sometimes we're able as Christians to walk with Jesus in those times of hardships, hopelessness, and struggle when you know you did something wrong. It's still hard to deal with sometimes, but we can deal with it. Like, well, if I did A, which was wrong to somebody, well, I shouldn't be surprised that B happened. You know, if I, if I cussed out the driver on the expressway, I should not be surprised that he's trying to ram my car. There's just a potential for that. But this is coming from a man who who is not described there being a sin issue. He's just downtrodden. And I'm telling you from personal experience, it is very hard being in long-sustained Periods of time like this when you feel like, well, what did I do? What What did I do wrong? See, that's a different type of pain, a different type of downtroddenness to work through because, again, there's nothing that you can say this is the reason why. And David is calling out to the Lord in this way because he's broken In his distress, he cries out, focusing on three different things. One is he cries out addressing God. He also addresses himself, and then he addresses others. In addressing God, David says to the Lord, basically, where are you? (laughs) Where are you at? I know you're the one and true living God, but it seems as if you're hiding your face from me. In fact, it's not that you're hiding your face. It seems like maybe there's some intentionality like, you've just forgotten me. And these are the feelings he had, the feeling of aloneness, the feeling of abandonment. He feels yeah. like God has forsaken him. And what do you... How are we to process that? Because it's a real feeling that we all feel. There are those of us are in here who are smiling right now that we would have no idea that this is exactly what they feel right now. They're saying, God, where are you? I love how Calvin describes this. He actually shares this in his commentary on uh, Psalm 13. He says, when David saw no single ray of good hope from whatever corner he turned, so far as for human reason could judge, Constrained by grief, he cries out to God that he is not regarding him. Yes, when we are for a long time weighed down by the calamities of life and we do not perceive any sign of divine aid, this thought unavoidably forces itself upon us, that God has forgotten us. And what a troubling space to be in when you feel like the creator of all Humanity and of this world has forgotten you. This experience of divine alienation weighs heavy. And after addressing this idea of towards God of where are you and you've left me hanging, he talks about his own personal anguish when he says, how long must I be consumed in my soul or how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? And we all know that in extended periods of adversity, we often give way to discontentment. And when that happens, we tend to do one thing, and that is we take it in our own hands. How many people will take it in their own hands? I'm asking for participation. Go on, on up to it. We've all been like, hey, it ain't working. I'm taking this into my own hands. God, I, I trusted you. You're moving a little bit too slow. I've got this now. And what happens is in those moments where we seek to find our own remedies, and David is saying he's taking counsel in his own soul. He's looked into himself to solve this situation. What often happens is this, is that we come up with a solution that may be temporarily lived but often comes with significant blowback. And what started off very minute or borderline hard all of a sudden turns into this big fiasco of pain and hardship that is even being added on top of the sorrow and pain already felt this sense of this sorrow that is being renewed daily and his heart is heavy because he tried to handle it himself and it didn't work out. I had the pleasure while going to school at Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, to kind I had a brother I used to from my hometown, he had this crew called MIH making it happen. And the whole premise was like out oh, of there, no matter what, you know you hustle and you make it happen. And on the surface, I mean, it's a very practical American way of doing things. It's like, hey, you know, we got to make it happen. The problem is, is that when you do that, we can never equate the significance of what moving in our own strength will do to us long term. This mindset, again, very practical, very normal, but can cause great grief and heartache. And I think that's why in... Proverbs, Solomon pins these words through the power of the Holy Spirit saying that we must trust in the Lord, not with part of our heart, not with some of our heart, but with all our heart. And lean not into our own understanding. In all our ways we are to acknowledge him and he will make our path straight. But he also continues when he says, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing for your flesh and refreshment to your bones. There is A problem that manifests when we try and do it ourselves and David is saying God I feel like you're gone I've been trying to do it by myself but how long must I do this because it's not working and after he cries out he finishes off lastly with him addressing others he's dealt with God his issue with him his own inward issue and now he's talking about the other people when he says this because he's saying listen How long shall my enemies exalt over me? Here David stands, the anointed one. The great prophet Samuel had said that he was the one who would be king and lead Israel. He's the young man who defeated Goliath and led Israel. He's the one crying out to God right now saying, listen, how much longer must I deal with this? Where I feel like you're gone, where I'm taking counsel on my own and now my enemies are, are going to be able to gloat over me. It's this holy sense of shame. There are times in your walk where you're kind of like, Lord, I know trials come, I know issues happen, but but God, how long are you going to let this make you look bad? How long am I, how long am I going to stay in this position where now my enemies are exalting themselves. Now they're looking at me. Oh, this is the holy one. This is the anointed one. This is the one who serves the true and living God of Israel. This is him. People who are going to look and say, oh, this is this is my coworker who's always talking about Jesus. This is my family member who's always sharing the gospel with me. And this this is, oh yeah, that God can't be real. And David is appealing to the Lord saying, how long are my enemies going to be able to then look at me and then look at you? David has brought forth this question of God. But now he transitions after he's, he's, he's come to God, he's now saying, okay, I presented the problem, here's my petition, here's, here's what I want you to do. Because again, it's not enough just to say, hey, here's the problem. He's bold enough to say, well, here's what I want. I I want you to consider some change. And he says, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I have been shaken. David questioned God, but now he's in a position where he's saying, listen, God, I need you to come here. Consider and answer me, which is to say, Inspect, examine, and give me serious thought. Like, I want you to focus on me and answer. I need you to respond. But he doesn't come there and just stop because he says he actually has an expectation. He's expecting God to answer his prayer. And I think there's a significant difference in how we navigate life often that we can learn from the psalmist here. There have been times where I've prayed and not expected an answer. Yes, as a pastor, I confess, who's been walking with Jesus almost 23 years, I have prayed at times and not expected an answer. And the reason why I didn't expect an answer is because, you know what, I wasn't happy with how God had been moving already. But David here, in his anguish, in his downtrodden space, he says, listen, I still expect an answer from my God. What do you do when you feel as if you're in the darkest space you've ever been, and you're actually just too afraid to ask God? It's too hard to believe again. You've asked God before. You've been in this journey for some seasons. And although you used to expect responses, you started to struggle with expecting responses. And part of the reasons why we struggle with expecting those responses is because some of the responses we got in the past didn't turn out to be the responses we wanted. It's the idea of of calling out to God for something that is not inherently sinful. You're actually calling out to God for something good. But the answer you got wasn't what you wanted. Because somehow we have associated God's answering our prayers and God's goodness with lining up with what our desires are. So, God is no longer judged by who God is, by his nature and his character. He's judged by how I feel like his nature and character line up with what it is I desire and want. So, our expectations start to change because you know what? God has not answered the way I pleased. But the psalmist David here is saying, I have an expectation of God to answer. And I'm actually going to believe that God is going to answer. Because despite all that he's gone through, he really feels that without God answering, he is a man without life. There's hopelessness. He says, I, 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 if you don't answer, lest I sleep the sleep of death. He's equating this idea that the very idea of death is what is to come because he's like, without you, it's nothing. I need the light of your salvation, Lord. I need the light of what I know to be true, even though in this moment it, I don't see the manifestation of his truth. I need that joy. I need you to speak into my situation in the ways that only you can otherwise death is destined. And again, like before, my enemies will look and believe that the enemy has prevailed over him. They will rejoice in our shakenness. Up until this point, this text is riddled with discouragement. There's nothing hopeful about what we've read. David has cried out in anguish and despair, which many of us can relate to. I don't know your specific situation, just like we don't know David's specific situation. But I know some of us are in here hurting. Some of us literally feel like we're at the end. I can't press anymore. I can't push past the emotion. Coming to church isn't really giving me what I want. I can't keep trying to hold on to the marriage. I can't keep trying to fix and heal this relationship with my my parents. I can't deal with the pain of the miscarriage. I can't sustain myself any longer with what I'm facing. My child has walked away and I don't know how to bring it. I'm tired of being the sacrificial lamb. I'm tired of the one who holds everything together. I'm tired. How long, Lord, am I expected to endure this? And in those moments of brokenness, in those moments of honesty, I want to encourage us as we look at the psalm, what David does here, what we learn from David, and that, uh, and that is this, is that he does something that I think many of us struggle to do. I think this is one of the downsides to what happens when you get saved and then you start getting churched. When you save, you don't know any better. So it's just kind of like, I say whatever to God because I don't know not to. When you get churched, you start to learn how to properly present yourself before God. And what we learn from David is he's saying, listen, I I don't have time for platitudes. I don't have time to pretend as king or future king, because we don't know where he is and whatever season of life. He's like, I don't have time to pretend. God, I'm going to be honest with you. And there's a freedom in honesty. There's this idea of saying that, you know what? I can be honest to God, with God, about how I feel about my situation, and guess what? How I feel about him. I've got news for you. If you believe God is who he says he is, even if you're here and still figuring that out. But if you believe partially, even just the idea that God is this this almighty creator of all things, you really think he doesn't know how you feel in your heart. But we will deceive ourselves into believing that somehow we're deceiving him and, and keeping it from him. Like, oh, God doesn't know how I really feel about him even though I'm throwing up these lofty prayers of thanksgiving and praise and like, oh, I love you. Jesus, you're my best friend. You're the best thing that ever happened. You know, this thorn on my side, your strength is my, you know, made perfect in my weakness. I've got it, Jesus. But when you're by yourself, you're like, this sucks. I didn't sign up for this. Where's the blessings? Where's the provision? Why did I lose my job? Why hasn't my, my significant other been healed? Why is it that after all the years of praying, my dad still didn't get saved before he died? And these are the issues that we have in our heart and our mind, but we don't tell God about them. And what David releases us to do here is he's saying, you can be honest with God. David is saying, yes, you can share honestly your brokenness, your struggles with trusting him, your sense of feeling as if he has left you, and God will not shun you. He will not shame you. He will not say you are no longer his child. David is saying, you can come to him with everything. And know that God is big enough to handle it. This is a man who, within six verses, has gone from the pit of despair to shift his language. Within the first four voices, it seems helpless. But we find our anchor in the last two, where he says this. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. David has has transitioned. Now, I want to clarify, he did not push past his feelings of negative thoughts. He didn't just say, oh, I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to push past it. But David communicated his despair and then was able to turn the corner because he was able to then look to who God is and his nature. And the reason why this is important is because, listen, our emotions are very real. Our feelings are very real. But I'm here to let you know they are not the truth. As I mentioned earlier, hopelessness is a feeling that you may have, but you're never actually hopeless. There is always something, even if it's the hardest thing to see. And although severely afflicted, this is what he says again, but I have trusted in you. Now, I'm going to get a little theologically nerdy, okay? Please check with me. I, I, I promise I'll make it easy. So here we go. This is just a quick language lesson and kind of some of the language I want to use. This is kind of terms that are used when you're explaining Greek. But it's significant, so rock with me. The grammar found here is beautiful because it does two things. In the beginning of verse 5 and at the end of verse 6, they feature what are called perfect present progressive tense, which describes the action that began in the past and continues in the present. So what does he say? He says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. We go to the end, he says, because he has dealt bountifully with me. So it's this idea that something that took place in the past is shaping and actually taking place now in the present. And sandwiched in between there are what are called two future tense statements. And they are the byproduct of what are these past experiences. So David is saying, because of the memories I have, when I trusted God and when he dealt bountifully with me, I can then choose to allow my heart to rejoice in his salvation and then sing to him. And so what this requires us to do is to say, hey, we have to have faith records. We have to have a file that we go back to. I know everybody's not a journaler in here, but as I've gotten older at 43, my memory just is not doing what it used to do when I was 20. So taking notes is helpful. Because having documentation of where you've seen God show up and come through are going to be one of the things that helps you when it seems like God is not showing up and is not coming through. And that's what David is showing us here, live and direct from the Old Testament, saying, listen, I know because of trusting God in his steadfast love and because I've seen him deal bountifully with me, that despite this hopelessness, this anxiety and depression that has overtaken me, I can still rejoice in the salvation that I know he brings, and I can sing to him. And so what I'm saying is, sometimes the simplest thing to do is actually the hardest thing to do. And that is remembering what God has done and then saying, you know what, I'm going to choose To rejoice. It doesn't say my heart will hopefully rejoice. It doesn't say my heart will by itself rejoice. It says my heart shall. That phrasing of shall is saying there's an ownership. He's saying there's some control I have in this where I'm actually going to push my heart towards rejoicing because of who God is. And then he sings. Now listen, I know different cultures do different things, I know our rhythms are different. I'm not knocking nobody's rhythm, okay? I think everybody's rhythm is their rhythm and gives glory to God somehow. And I know not every one of us knows how to sing. Some of us say, hey, listen, I'm more reserved, quiet. Then you have those extra people like, oh, I'm out here. and everything in between. But I think there's a benefit of really actually following what the text says. There are times you need to uncomfortably make yourself sing. And I'm not talking about just singing at church. I'm saying there are times where you're in your car, where you need to go to the bathroom at work and just get some quiet time in a quiet place and start to sing to the Lord. And I don't care what your voice sounds like because we're not doing it for that. You've got to sing to the Lord because what I'm telling you is sometimes that is the only thing that will get you going. You have to actually retrain what your thoughts are doing right now and focus on the, the Lord I've shared this very openly uh, And me and God still wrestle with this. We lost our our child in a miscarriage. Uh, I still, one of those areas, it's very, I still weep over it. Uh, But there was actually a song that helped minister to me and helped me in those moments of where I have hardship that I will go to and I will start to sing when my heart grows heavy. There are times where you just need to be able to sing to the Lord. And if you don't know a song, go grab a psalm and just sing, make up, just take the word and try and sing it. Because it does something to you. In learning, and I know I've got some teachers in here, they always tell you there, there are three ways. You can write, you read, and then you say it out. Because in, and when you do all those things, it actually helps your brain and you process and learn. What I'm saying as believers, we have to do that. You need to be doing those things to train your system so that you can have it in your heart. Because what I'm telling you is this: there are going to be times where you don't feel it. And when you don't feel it, what are you going to do? There's something just interwoven in mothers. I guarantee you, men, if you didn't know this, I'm going to let you know. They don't like breastfeeding. There's not this enjoyment, like, oh, I get to do this every day. But there's something in them that says, listen, even when I don't feel like it, I'm going to do it. And what I'm telling you is that learning process of speaking God's word, singing God's word, reading God's word, writing God's word, letting it come out, those things are going to be manifested in you so that when you don't feel like doing it, and I'm telling you, you're not going to feel like it, that you can still do it. And like David, you can say, you know what? Because I have trusted in God's steadfast love, his character and nature, I will rejoice. I will sing. Because you know what? I know he's dealt bountifully with me in the past. And if you're saying, well, Ashanti, my life has been full of turmoil, full of struggle, and I don't really have a lot of things to be bountiful about saying, hell, he dealt bountifully with me. I'll tell you one place where it can sum it all up. And it's very simple, even though sometimes it's hard to register, and that is on the cross. Yeah. If he did nothing else... Because he's a loving God, he still does other stuff. But if he did nothing else but provide atonement for our sins, that still counts as dealing with us bountifully. He died for sins past, present, and future This is the only relationship that you will ever have Well, they will love you. You have a God who will love you because your past sins you did, forgive you for your present sins that you're doing, and forgive you for the future ones. You might not even have that in your own marriage. To unconditionally love you. And that is what David anchors himself in. He's saying, listen, I'm anchored in knowing that he has bountifully dealt with me. And so even though I don't feel like it, yet and still, I will rejoice. So I want to encourage you um, as you move forward in life, in these new seasons, as we're still wrestling with uh, the pandemic, uh, even if masks are off and COVID vaccines are made and not required or required, this is the thing. We're going to be dealing with the aftermath of this for some time. It has done something to us emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually. Being detached from the body, then being reattached and detached again. I mean, there's so much that has happened. And you're going to have these moments where you feel completely overwhelmed and consumed. And I'm here to tell you this, is that I want you to put into practice this idea of saying, you know what, I want to proclaim my emotions. I'm going to speak out loud to God when I'm feeling a certain way. But then I'm going to anchor it with this, with the truth of God's word. So literally, when you feel down and you're like, I can't do this anymore, that's when you read Deuteronomy 3, 31, 6, and it says, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or dread them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. When you feel anxiety overwhelming, you say, Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that in proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him because what he cares for you. When you're feeling worthless and unloved, that's when you say, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. You feel like God has given up on you and you say Philippians 1:6 and I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Yes, David was distraught. He was anxious, he was depressed. But he knew by faith that his feelings, although real, were not truth, and the truth was wrapped up in the character of God, which is why he is able to say this, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let us pray. Father God, I am so thankful for your goodness. We are all here with different circumstances, different things waiting on us. we have got young people in here who are struggling with the issues of figuring out life, dealing with class relationships, the weighing of social media and the various issues that impact actually people at all levels of ages who are just trying to figure out their identity and they feel overwhelmed, they feel anxious, they feel even depressed. I pray, Lord God, that you would help them to see you for who you are and your love for them. But I also pray, Lord God, that you would help these young people to open up their hearts and open up their mouths to say, I need help. That same prayer I pray for adults who are trying to make it happen. Lord, I pray that you would help us humble ourselves and be honest with you and with ourselves that we need your help and that we would seek you with all our heart, but then we will also get help from counselors and those in leadership to help us navigate life. Lord, I pray that you will renew our hearts and our minds. And for those who have questions, who are wondering, who is this Jesus and why should I put my faith and trust in this God? I pray that they would have their hearts opened to recognize the reason why they put their faith and trust in you is because you are a wonderful, loving God. And they're going to have to deal with life circumstances either way. But it's much, much better to deal with those life issues with you, in you, and you through your Holy Spirit living in them than to journey alone. Might they find the true joy and the hope in your salvation. Direct us, Lord. Keep us in perfect peace. You say the ones who keep their minds stayed on you will be able to rest in that. So that's what we shall do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.